BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We interrupt this broadcast before it was history. It was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade. I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As Matt just mentioned, we have a breaking news story to tell you about. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. None of us at the time even thought it could possibly be terrorism. They said, you know, drop everything you're doing and get down to the uh, Trade Center. Oh. oh, my goodness, there's another this one. seems to be on purpose. Oh, my goodness. Now it's obvious, I think, that, uh, that there's a second plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. Oh my God, Ed, another plane just hit the World Trade Center. Another plane, it was a medium-sized plane, unbelievable. It was a, it would look like, oh my God. The United States of America is under attack. Uh, it's a very hard sentence to speak. I heard a woman screech, it's falling. There has just been a huge explosion. We can see uh, a billowing smoke rising and I can't, I'll, I'll tell you that I can't see that second tower. I don't want to die in here. I don't even know where I am. It gets worse. An aircraft has just crashed into the Pentagon, according to witnesses. This is just a horrific scene and a horrific moment. We're going to have to adapt that we're now in a war. Tried to do a floor-by-floor -floor search, New York City Police, the Fire Department, Port Authority Police. Best they could, tried to get everybody out. But as you know, uh, there were people still coming out after that building came down. 9-11 was horrible. 9-12, for me, was worse. I'm Brian Williams. Shortly before the deadliest terrorist attack in our nation's history, September 11th, 2001, was shaping up as a quiet day in the presidency of George W. Bush. He was sitting in an elementary school classroom in Sarasota, Florida, reading to the children, a lighthearted event in a politically vital state designed to draw attention to education reform. His press secretary, Ari Fleischer, accompanied the president. September 11th was supposed to be a very boring day, <laughs> a routine day with a focus on education. 
As the press secretary, I knew whatever happened that day, I wouldn't get a whole lot of questions about the education event the president was going to do at the school. The day did not turn out to be about education. There's been some sort of explosion at the World Trade Center. A breaking news story to tell you about. Apparently, a plane has just... We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. Tom Brokaw was then the anchor for NBC Nightly News. I just come back from Montana, and I... uh... I spent part of the summer trying to decide whether I wanted to continue as a nightly news anchor. Was it time to step away? And the phone rang, and it was the desk, and they said, small airplane has flown to the World Trade Center. Maybe you ought to come in. Aaron Brown was the primetime anchor for CNN. I was coming down the West Side Highway in New York uh, on my way to work, and the phone in the car rang, and it was my producer and longtime friend. David Borman and David said a plane has hit uh, one of the towers. I was in a cab on the way to work and my phone rang and it was the wife of a producer who lived downtown. And she said, Morris, I don't know if you've heard this, but the plane just hit the World Trade Center and I can see it and it's on fire. Marcy McGinnis was senior vice president for news coverage at CBS News headquarters in New York. So I called Dan Rather immediately. We used to have this phrase, which was, strap on your armor and get in. Dan Rather was the anchor of the CBS Evening News. First it was, something's happened at the World Trade Center. Then it was a plane allegedly hit it, believed to hit it. A kind of plane, first reports, a reminder to a reporter that first reports are frequently wrong. It was a small plane. And but by that time, I was running out the door because anything hits the World Trade Center. But I did go out on the balcony. We have a small balcony and sort of look in that direction. and. It's pretty obvious it wasn't any small plane hit it. By that time, it just trailer smoke and stuff. But then, you know, I raced to, to get to uh, our broadcast center, go into the anchor chair. I knew where my place was that day. We were having a lighthearted conversation with a musician and his wife, and we went to a break. And in that break, we saw a plane that hit a building. Brian Kilmeade, co-host of Fox News Channel's Fox and Friends. And we were looking at it, and at first I thought it was a small Cessna plane, and I thought, this is going to be damaging. I hope no one got hit on that floor. I didn't have a sense they were under attack, but the more you looked at it, and as we put up the local coverage in the break, we realized this was a really big deal. Charlie Gibson and Diane Sawyer were winding down, and we went into a commercial when the first plane went into the World Trade Center, into the first tower. Shelley Ross was executive producer of ABC's Good Morning America. I was on the headset with Diane and Charlie, and the director, of course, immediately pulled it up. Behind me, I had a, a booker and a researcher with a computer, and so I said, pull up everything on the World Trade Center bombing from the 90s you know, pull up everything and how many people, all the facts and figures of the companies that are there. There is an unconfirmed report. It was a twin engine plane. Now, even on a day like today, which is beautiful in New York, people will go up and down the Hudson River in this kind of free zone, which is below 1,100 feet. And maybe they'll go close to the trade center, close to the- The page came from a person in my office back at the White House who handles all news and breaking news. Brian Bravo, and he just simply texted me and said, an airplane has flown into the World Trade Center. No more information than that. So I thought, I better just go tell the president. Carl Rove also got a phone call from his office on his cell phone telling him about it. Carl got to the president before I did, and Carl mentioned it to the president. And that was the first inkling that the president and the traveling party had. But none of us at the time even thought it could possibly be terrorism. At that same moment, John Montone, a veteran reporter for the news radio station WINS in New York, was on the ground covering a different kind of story. It was the Democratic primary uh, for mayor. The voting that I was covering was taking place on the Upper East Side, and uh, the candidate came out, and there was the usual scrum of reporters. And uh, I remember his name was Mark Green, the public advocate of the city at that time. And he said, tonight we make history. 
And I thought, well, there's my voice cut all four or five seconds of it. And I went back to my truck and I began writing the story and I got a beep. We had the beepers back then and it said, call the desk. I called and they said, you know, drop everything you're doing and get down to the uh, trade center. A small plane crashed into the North Tower. Well, when a plane crashes into the world trade center, no matter how small it is, it's going to be a big story. So I immediately began speeding down the FDR and I put the uh, station on and I heard our anchor Lee Harris and he was talking to one of our sales reps, Joan Fleischer, who lived down there. And she screamed because another plane hit the South Tower. It is horrific. A second plane the size of a passenger jet flying into the second tower of the of the World Trade Center. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. You can't. I've never I've never seen anything like it. The smoke is so thick. There's still debris falling. Uh, I can't see from my vantage point where a second plane could have hit, but it might have hit on another in another direction. It doesn't well, seem I'm, to I'm afraid we'll be seeing it for quite some time to come. And at that point, you know, I pretty much knew, all right, we're under attack. I'm going into a war zone. I was reporting from a Catholic teacher strike on the Upper East Side. And I called in to do a hit and my boss said, a plane has just hit the World Trade Center. Get down there as soon as possible. Mara Rubin was a reporter for WOR Radio in New York. But then um, I was talking to a reporter who was on the same story that I was on on the Upper East Side. He worked for a TV station and he said, listen, we'll give you a ride. Why don't you just get in the back of the truck? On the way there, we're watching the video monitors in the van. And then all of a sudden we see another plane hit the second tower. And we're like, oh, my God, this is not an accident and this isn't a small plane something sinister is happening and this is something we've never seen before and bigger than we've ever seen before and we have to get there as soon as possible i got a cab and i looked in front of me and there were about 30 people standing in the middle of hudson street just looking downtown because if you looked right down hudson street you could see directly to the world trade center Beth O'Connell was producer of special programming for NBC News in New York. And I saw in his rearview mirror this huge fireball had just gone up. It was also just the middle of rush hour. So I got out at about 40th Street and just ran the rest of the way to Rockefeller Plaza. I, uh, you know, jumped into a suit and put on a tie and ran out of the street. It was Election Day in New York. And people were coming and going, and I, a caravan of fire trucks were racing across Park Avenue to the west side. I, oh, that fixed in my mind, but I didn't know at that point what, how serious it was. Got in a cab, and downtown, uh, I listened to uh, all news radio, and a very good news uh, radio reporter said, I was just in Washington Square, a plane flew over low altitude high speed and flew into the second tower. And I instantly knew that we were under attack. And I called my wife in Montana and said, I don't know if we'll be able to talk again. I'm on my way to the office. Better turn on the television set. So I got to the office, uh, ran down to the Today Show where uh, Matt Lauer and Katie were on the air and Tim was in Washington. And uh, there were no big instructions. I sat down and because I'd been the senior guy, you know, on most stuff, I kind of gravitated to me. Yeah, it looks like a big chunk of it has just peeled away. One can only hope that the area has been evacuated, but of course you wonder about all the emergency vehicles and the people who might have been injured early in the morning. I had people call any business there, you know, calling Cantor Fitzgerald, of course. And of course we weren't getting through. We didn't know why. We didn't know that the towers had been knocked out and that there was no service. So I was very concerned for the team because, of course, we also work in a landmark building. So I got HR to come into the control room, and I had everybody gather around, and I said, clearly, we're going to be on the air for a very long time. We want you 
to do whatever you feel is the most important thing for you to do. If you don't feel comfortable being here, we totally understand. And for the rest of you, take this time while the Today Show's on the air, go downstairs, buy a couple shirts, (laughs) buy some toothpaste and a toothbrush, and we'll make sure that we have places for everybody to stay because it doesn't feel like we're going anywhere for a long time. David Borman was executive producer at CNN and worked with CNN's executive vice president, Sid Bedingfield. I called Sid Bedingfield and said, okay, here's what's happening. Aaron's on his way. By the time he gets here, the live shot on the roof should be ready. It's got a view of the World Trade Center. I've got cameras. I've got mics. We'll be all ready when Aaron gets here. And he said, no, I want him in the studio. I said, no, Sid, I'm not going to put Aaron in the studio. I said, he's on the balcony. You see the Trade Center behind him. And we went around in a circle. He said, I want him in the studio. And I hung up on him and ignored him. The stream of editorial control shifted. When Aaron got in, he went out onto the balcony. I plugged into all the circuits. I made sure Aaron could hear me. I made connection with the people in Atlanta because... The way that CNN was wired for many, many years, everything had to go through Atlanta. I was guiding Aaron and the people in Atlanta and the other bureaus were then funneling information to me and telling me what other options we had as we were, in fact, watching what was going on in the tower. My pager went off again and it said a second plane has hit the World Trade Center. And I instantly knew it had to be terrorism. And Literally within 30 seconds of my getting that page, Andy Card walked into the room and whispered in the president's right ear, a second plane has hit the second tower. America is under attack. And I, because of the page I got, I knew that had to be what Andy whispered to the president. And that at moment forward changed everything. We all knew we were now dealing with an attack on the United States of America. I parked the car and and was running across, literally running across 8th Avenue, and I was in the middle of the intersection. That's one of the few things I remember really well, is I stopped and said, calm down. Just calm down. Whatever it is that's about to happen, whatever's happening to the country, whatever this story, this piece of history, and I pretty much thought we were going to be doing history that day, the most important thing you can be is calm. And the sense of calm kind of passed through me. And I think that's the one thing, I probably made a lot of mistakes that day, but I think I stayed pretty calm through all of it and I think calm mattered. They said, Jim Kloshevsky wants to come out of the air. And he was at the Pentagon. Katie, I don't want to alarm anybody right now, but apparently there, it, it felt just a few moments ago like there was an explosion of some kind here at the Pentagon. They gave me a crew when we were going downtown And as we were doing it, we were looking straight ahead and watching the buildings burn straight down Broadway. And I remember we pulled over with the SUV that we're in with Scott Wilder, who is now an executive here. And he goes, I got to shoot some of this. I got to give people the perspective of what it's like on, I think, probably 42nd Street and 6th. And he starts shooting and a guy in a jeans shirt but short sleeves was screaming on the phone. And he's getting all mad and he's using expletives. And I said, what's going on? And he goes, they just hit the Pentagon. And I go, no, just listen to the radio. I'm with Fox News. We didn't hit the Pentagon. He goes, I'm on with the Pentagon. They just hit the Pentagon. He kind of yelled at me. And I go, wow, no question. We're under attack. I will tell you when the mood shifted was when we got word that a plane had hit the Pentagon. I remember immediately keying into Aaron. And I said, the country is under attack. And I could see the look in his eyes. My emotions in the moment precluded me from saying the sentence, the United States of America is under attack. Uh, It's a very hard sentence to speak. And anyone who thinks it's easy should try it in front of a billion people, which is what we were working in front of around the world that day. And it was in my head and it was trying to get to my tongue and somewhere in that path lies your heart. And I think my heart was not letting me say that my country was under attack. And it's still, um, as I sit here now, not an easy sentence to speak. I whispered to Diane and Charlie, 
do not repeat this on the air, what I'm about to say, but I believe this is Pearl Harbor. We are under attack. I said, this will change us. We're at war. And from this moment on, we're going to be a different country. And this is the greatest attack on an American institution since the War of 1812, which it turned out it was. I remember that running through my mind. Has there ever been anything remotely like this? No. Pearl Harbor, Hawaii was not a state at that point. It was a territory. So I said that. But I remember what I said most of all is that it's going to change us. We're going to have to adapt that we're now in a war against an enemy from the Middle East who use an unconventional enterprise. A lot of people, my friends uh, among them, said to me, I needed to hear that. You know, I needed to make a transition in my own mind about what we were in for here. And just as quickly and in real time, broadcast networks were forced to decide just how raw that coverage would be. We were watching this and we had a, just a flash of people jumping out of the Twin Trade Towers. That got out of the air briefly, and then wisely, everybody said, don't do that. We're not going to cover that that way. But it was harrowing. I'll never forget the image of the woman I saw, you know, who was fluttering her hands on the way down, and uh, he wanted to throw up at that point. So we knew how serious it was. Mara, what's it look like down there? It must be uh, terrible. It is a terrible scene. People are just walking down the street with their hands covering their mouth in disbelief. They can't believe it. And then you hear the sirens and people screaming as they look up at the building and see people trying to get out and some people jumping. Um, I was interviewing somebody and um, looking at the World Trade Center. So I was looking south and I guess the person I was interviewing was looking north. And I'm asking them, you know, what did you hear? What was it, you know, that you saw? And they're telling me their story. And as I'm interviewing them, I see someone jumping. I'm going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Somebody is jumping from the World Trade Center. And that image, I I mean, I could see it now, just like floating down like, like a leaf. And this is during me interviewing somebody in a live broadcast. Someone in our bureau let me know that we had video of people jumping out of the building. It was very far away. They were small. You didn't see anybody impact, but you clearly saw that there were people who were forced with this horrible decision and were leaping from the building. And I remember we had a pretty healthy conversation inside CNN. People did start having video of the most tragic part of the day, which was people either being blown out or jumping out of windows. It did wind up on somebody's air, not ours. And I remember standing up and saying, okay, we're all sharing video. That video will never be on our air. We are not going to be broadcasting that. I actually thought that we should seriously think about showing it because it underscored the enormity and the seriousness and the evilness of what was happening. In the end, we decided not to run it. It may have been the right decision not to run it, but it's pictures that you can never unsee, and I did see them. And hovering above it all was the grave uncertainty of what might come next. I remember pointing a camera for the rest of the day at the Statue of Liberty because I assumed that if the country was under attack and they hit the World Trade Center and they hit the Pentagon, it was not unlikely that they might try to get to the the Statue of Liberty. On Air Force One, we got information primarily from the president who was on an open line that kept cutting out to the bunker underneath the White House where he was in touch with Vice President Cheney, uh, National Security Advisor Condi Rice and others in the bunker down below. What was amazing, too, about that day, though, was in 2001, there was no satellite TV aboard Air Force One. We literally could watch the breaking story, the news on TV, only when Air Force One flew over a a ground-based antenna that had sufficient reach that the signal could be picked up by Air Force One. So it was intermittent. We would fly and have static, and then a signal would be clear, and we could get the TV 
and see what the American people were seeing, watch, hear what the American people were hearing. And of course, at a breaking moment like that, the media is quite good. The media has so many reporters and cameras and the ability to tell a story uh, that sometimes is better than the government's ability to to get information. I, I went down to the base of the South Tower and, and the plane was still sticking out. I looked up and the fuselage and it was just smoking. So I run back up to Broadway and I didn't think much of it at the time. But as I'm running up, there's a column two by two of firefighters walking right toward the South Tower. You know, young guys as firefighters tend to be. I only thought of that later. Again, it's haunted me ever since. We will continue our story in a moment. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm Brian Williams. Welcome back. NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw. These are two coordinated airplane attacks on the building on the upper reaches of it. That will have an enormous structural effect. Those buildings, I think that it's fair to say, uh, will probably have to be brought down. I thought, uh, you know, that they would have a controlled destruction of them. And then I thought, they shouldn't have said that. And just about then, they began to go down. It was truly a heart-stopping moment. Then I heard a woman screech, it's falling. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, the building fell. Are you there? The building just fell. Which, which? Oh, my God, the South building. The The South Tower just vaporized. It disintegrated. And there was kind of a tsunami, like a whoosh, that just went, you know, over us, the dust. And then there was an absolute stampede of the people that I was with. I was making my way, weaving through streets, and things hit me. And then I'm looking, and I'm covered in stuff, and I have cuts on my arm. A police officer was screaming and yelling and ushering people, get off the street, go, go inside. And somehow we ended up in a building which was between Broadway and Nassau Street. And we're kind of stuck in a hallway and the hallway was filling up with dust. And I was thinking, gee, I may not make it out of here. And I thought of, you know, my wife and children. So I remember I was ushered into a lobby of a building and it was dark in there. All these people were huddled and nobody was talking and everyone was scared. You could see like, you know, frightened. And and then I started to, to, to think to myself, I don't want to die in here. I don't even know where I am and I'm supposed to be reporting and I can't stay in here. We don't know if the other building's going to collapse. Finally, he let me out and it was the luckiest moment of my life. Because I walked outside and literally I walked into like a gaggle of the mayor, the fire commissioner, the police commissioner. And there might have been like two other reporters and a little other officials. And I was like, you know what? I'm staying with them. If anybody in this world knows where to go to be safe, these people do. So but the thing is, they didn't know. I didn't realize they didn't know what to do. Very shortly after that, I got out on the NASA street side of the building which is when I realized I lost my recorder it's gone everything I had was gone we're trying to get down there they keep pushing us wide keeping us pushing us wide 
keep pushing us wide. We finally ditched the car because the cops were just saying it's too dangerous. So we walked maybe 25 blocks. It looked like we were on the moon. You could not see any of the pavement. It was so much dust, which was from the building, so many papers and shoes everywhere. I was able to see these firefighters and it just really struck in my mind. And they hopped in a pickup truck. And as they're going by me, they, their whole crew, he said, well, I lost half my crew. I go, where are they? He goes, they're in there. We're going back. So I go, why in this car? He goes, our fire truck got crushed. So as they're in their fire outfits, they're sitting on the back of a pickup truck and they're going back in and they go, the guy seems stop. He goes, everyone write down your names. So I know who I'm looking for and to what unit or whatever you, uh, engine you're with. And they wrote down their names. They go, we're going. And they go back. So that was their reconnaissance. That's how they were going to look out for each other. The first tower had gone down. I had heard about five minutes before a report that I did not broadcast, that the city was looking for 20,000 body bags. And that was with one tower down. And that number is beyond comprehension. And one of the things I didn't do that day, I never talked about numbers People who might have died, people who were hurt. We didn't know, and I said to viewers a lot, whatever number we were to put out, it's going to be wrong. So let's just, this is going to be awful enough. But that number was in my mind. I start running down one of the side streets toward the East River. I ran into the Burger King at the time, and I start telling a, a woman there in the uniform, I've got to get to the phone, I'm with 1010 wins. And she looked at me, and I guess I was just so covered with the ash. And I remember it was in my mouth. She sat me down and she said, honey, you're getting water and you're getting rid of what's in you. And I just start drinking the water and spitting it all up, spitting it all up. She couldn't help me with a phone. And I remembered there were some office buildings down toward the East River. And I went down. I convinced the doorman to let me go in. And people in one of the offices, who I never got to thank, gave me a desk and I was able to get on the phone. And that's how I went on on the air for, you know, the rest of the morning. I had to be the commander in chief and I had to be the consoler in chief, as it were. There was a woman in the newsroom whose dad was in the World Trade Center and, you know, we knew that he had passed away. So on one hand, you've got your arm around a young girl. And on the other hand, you're saying to people, you know, go here, go there, do this, do that. I remember there was a a producer who came into the newsroom and he lived down there and he was covered in all of that white soot. And he looked like he, he was kind of in a daze. And I said, Tom, Tom, are you okay? Are you okay? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I said, can you go on the set with Dan? So, you know, so on one hand, I'm I'm like hugging Tom to make sure he's okay. And on the other hand, I'm saying, can you please go on the set and tell Dan what you saw? So it, it was this weird combination of being a, you know, a mother and a commander at the same time. Then shortly after 10 a.m. Eastern time came news that a fourth hijacked commercial airliner had crashed into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, once more killing all aboard. United Airlines 93. This was a Boeing 757 bound from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco. It crashed in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, near the town of Shanksville. It is not known how many passengers or crew were on board, although initial reports indicated uh, no survivors. I had two crews, a couple of camera people, a couple of correspondents, and a satellite truck. David Bernkoff was senior producer at CNN. And Shanksville was strange because it was unlike the other two locations. There really was nothing to see. I was struck by the fact that I was told by the local police that the crash had occurred somewhere up that hill through that cornfield. And that that's all I could see. There's no burn mark from where we were on a lower point on the road. There's no trees that have exploded. There's no building that's damaged. There are no people visible. 
I mean, even the rescue workers and whoever is up there are up over the top of this hill. You just looked up from a gravel road where we all were parking, where the satellite truck was. It became our home away from home. And you saw old cornfield where the corn had already been harvested. That's it. You're told that the plane has exploded and there's nothing really left of it. But still, it's, it's eerie to be covering a disaster like that. You see what happened to the World Trade Center. You see the residue at the Pentagon. And here you see a fairly undisturbed cornfield. And about 30 minutes after the fourth plane crash, the second World Trade Tower began to crumble. And there's, you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. Good Lord. There are no words. You can see large pieces of the building falling. You can see the smoke rising. You can see a portion of the, the, the side of the building now just being covered on the right side, as I look at it, covered in smoke. This is just a horrific scene and a horrific moment. When the second building went down, we all just needed a moment to look at it and think about it. And nothing I could say was going to be as powerful as what they saw. Nothing I could add was going to make people feel better or, frankly, worse. It was all in front of them. I just thought it was a good time to to be quiet. There's no brilliance in that. It's just an understanding that sometimes what viewers need is a moment to feel it. This isn't, this, what, what went on in the 11th was not all of the head. It was of the soul and the heart. It was a country that we all knew in those moments was going to be changed. And to take five seconds or ten seconds to just let people feel it seemed like the right thing to do. We had a young staff, and many of them were from New York, and many of them knew people who worked at the World Trade Center. You could look around the newsroom and see who got a phone call that someone they knew was missing. Literally, they would be on the phone and they would go over on their desk. I decided that the best I could do was go over to them, get them up out of the office, and I walked as many people. It it grew over the days, but I walked people, my colleague, the younger colleagues around the block and brought them back in the building. Let them just walk out and process it outside. I got a phone call from a local who said to me that they knew of a friend who lived way out on the other side from of the field from where we were, a couple of miles away, who had told them that there were pieces of paper everywhere around their house and they assumed it had to be from the crash. And so I took a crew out there and it was clearly residue from the crash. Most of it were were pieces like the size of a dime or a nickel of what looked like the seats from the plane, pieces of fabric. But one thing that I saw in a tree I looked up and saw a burned partial document. And it looked to me like a document from a mortgage. And it struck me, this might have been somebody coming home with a new home they had just purchased. And this is what is left of that happiness. And that was when I, as a first time, that I started to get teary and sad about it. First time I felt it as a person, really, not as a journalist. That night, I think it was about 4 o'clock in the morning when I was going home just to really shower and get a change of clothes. I lived below 14th Street, so it looked like an armed camp. I mean, it looked like London after the Blitz. I mean, armored cars through 14th Street and... 
doctors and nurses standing outside of what was then St. Vincent's Hospital with gurneys just hoping to be helpful to victims and nobody was coming. And then days thereafter, bus stands and uh, phone calls with pictures of fathers in tuxedos walking their daughter down the aisle and, you know, people just hoping that people would recognize people. And I do remember talking about we need to put a face to these victims. We need to tell these stories of these people. It's not just 2,000, almost 3,000 people. It's individual families. It's very important, I think, to, to tell people's individual stories. I went home that night and we lived up on Park Avenue in an apartment that looked south and we were up high enough that I could see the glow down there and I had a big Irish whiskey and water, a big one. It went straight to me. It had no impact on me at all. And I thought, if I have another one, it won't, you know, I'll, I won't be, so I went to sleep and uh, woke up very early the next morning and it turns out a very, very dear friend had died coincidentally that same night of one cancer and I was called about it and I just, I just been, I just cried for a half an hour about her and about all that we'd been through and went back to the office. Inevitably, in the chaos and raw confusion of those terrible hours, some reports did turn out to be factually inaccurate. When the news and the demand for news is immediate and things are red hot and tense, what I'm afraid happens is the normal barriers to mistakes break down and people just put things up on the air and it alarms people. And whether it turns out to be true or not is secondary. On September 11th, the media reported incorrectly that there was a car bomb at the State Department. There was none. They reported incorrectly that the mall was on fire. There was no fire on the mall. What that was was the vantage point that certain reporters had after the Pentagon got hit. It made it look like the smoke was coming from an area that they thought was the mall, but it wasn't. So the media did instantly put on the air things they were hearing that just were factually wrong in the crush, in the rush, to just say what the latest development is. You know, the role of anchor in that moment is not a baseball play-by-play announcer. You're not simply describing what you see. You, you have to make editorial decisions about the import of what you see and the implications of what you see. In a moment like that, you know there are things that are going to be wrong. You know you're going to report things that turn out not to be right. Um, that's, true in, that's true in any breaking news situation. I just want to make sure we minimize that and that if we were going to err, and I assumed we were, that nothing we did was going to make the situation worse than it was. It was plenty bad enough. And so I think that I was conservative in how I reported the story. I didn't think it mattered at all. I don't think it does now. To have said then, well, 5,000 people are going to, will, will certainly have perished or anything. I mean, that sort of stuff didn't matter. What mattered was to give people a broad sense of what was happening to the extent we could, why it was happening, to keep people abreast of where the American government was in that moment mattered a lot. There were phone calls I was on with all the uh, bureau chiefs in a few days after September 11th, talking about a variety of matters related to coverage. People wanted to do what was in the interest of journalism, but also with an eye toward protecting the country. They were very serious and sober phone calls. We talked a little bit about they agreed not to show certain scenes on the roof of the White House. There were certain things going on on the roof of the White House of a protective nature. And they had the technology and the rooftops to have cameras filming the top of the White House. They agreed they wouldn't show it. They agreed they wouldn't reveal the president's travel more than 24 hours ahead of time. There were a lot of worries that this was just the first wave and there would be a second wave. We also talked about if Osama bin Laden released a video and the networks, when they first got the video, all the cables and networks, put the video directly live on the air. Breaking news, video from Osama bin Laden. And they showed it in its entirety. Well, it didn't take long for the CIA to realize there could be a coded message in that video. He could be sending a message to sleeper cells in the United States about a second wave. And so we made a request, again, on one of these phone calls with all the network officials and the cable officials, not to air bin Laden videos in their entirety. Find snippets of it. 
air the highlights of it, but please don't show it in its entirety. A lot of common sense steps that the networks took to cover the news and do their job, but recognize at a time when America is under attack, they did not want to do anything that could contribute to doing anything to advantage the enemy or to weaken our country. The attacks of September 11th claimed 3,000 lives and left behind an estimated 25,000 injured. Two wars were launched in the name of the attacks on that day. Americans in all walks of life were scarred by what happened that day, just as the death toll continues to this day for those exposed to the air around Ground Zero in New York. The indelible memories from 9-11 live on in the journalists who chronicled the single worst day in modern American history. 9-11 was horrible. 9-12, for me, was worse. I was sent to Bellevue Hospital in the morning, and I was told to report from there. I remember getting there and seeing, like, a big poster board you know, with pushpins and all these posters of, have you seen this person, their name, their eye color, their hair color, a picture of them, their age, you know, their date of birth. And then my job was to talk to these family members who were clutching pictures, you know, of their loved ones or these like Xerox pieces of paper that I'm describing right now that were on the board holding them. Have you seen this person? And talking to them about, you know, who who went missing, who who's who, who in their family is gone and who are they looking for? Because at that point they had like stretchers outside the hospital, and inside the hospital. And they had, you know, the emergency room was ready, you know, to go. Should they bring in people? But this was the next day and nobody was coming. And at that point, it kind of sunk in that all these people standing outside with pictures of their loved one waiting for them to show up at the hospital. They weren't going to show up. Everyone across the board got it, understood that this was history. Uh, we all shared pictures. None of us thought about competing that day. We just thought about doing this well. And someday I know that I'll step back from all of this and be incredibly proud that I was part of a business that on that day, in its most important moment, that we all got it. I will tell you, it took me uh, more than 10 years before I would go back and look at the look at the video. It took me until 2016 till I would even go to Ground Zero, although I went I went with Aaron a couple of times in the, you know, in the days and week afterwards as we were still covering the story. I remember going to uh, with him when he went down into the pit. But once the initial story stopped, and it began to be a piece of history. Uh, it's as close as I'll get to PTSD. I mean, I just, it's something that I, that it took, it took me 15 years to be able to actually go to Ground Zero. I think that 9-11, in terms of what the work that we did was some of our finest hours. We came together as a team. I can remember one woman, she was about nine months pregnant and she was a senior producer on a on a show and she said I'll take over the guest booking. Someone else came along and said I'm going to find the pictures of every single victim. And 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 like they formed a team to find you know pictures of every victim so that eventually we would be able to show that on the air. So people were coming out of the woodwork to say I'll do this which is above and beyond my job. People stepped up in the face of fear in the face of anxiety, in the face of worrying about their own personal family members who might have been affected, it was truly one of our, our finest hours. I think everybody, you know, who went down to that scene went down there at least as they got close up, knowing that, you know, their own life was in peril, that something could happen. We didn't know what else was going to go on, if there were bombs anywhere, you know, uh, if they were going to attack, if people were going to come out with, you know, uh, automatic weapons. You know, we, we really had no idea 
But I, I think when you start to work and, you know, when you do what we do, sometimes you just forget about all of that. And, you know, you're just so focused on telling the story and using your powers of observation and, and your, your ability to explain to people who are not there what is going on. And I think that kicked in. And that's what I believe broadcast journalism got right and did very well. Everybody forgot about any type of danger they were in, and they just became reporters and they told the story, the story that needed to be told to the best of our ability. I'm Brian Williams. For more information about this episode and our series, please visit our website, weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now, please listen to this special message from Bill Curtis about the great work of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.